Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. In this episode, we bring you a presentation that was delivered as part of the 2021 Acton Lecture Series, featuring Rachel Ferguson speaking on Black liberation through the marketplace. Viewing America's record on individual rights and constitutional order through a classical liberal lens, Ferguson sees the undeniable and blatant injustices perpetuated against Black Americans. But she also discovers Black entrepreneurs overcoming extraordinary obstacles and a Black community that has created flourishing institutions and culture. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Hello, all. <laughs> this group talks back. I like that. Um, at a recent visit to the International Civil Rights Center and Museum in Greensboro, North Carolina, I was struck by the opening image. It depicted a beautiful hand-sewn flag, uh, American flag, with the words of Thomas Jefferson's declaration superimposed, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator, with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The tour guide, her name was Robin, stunning older lady, uh, she pressed a button and the flag sort of faded. You could see the shadow, it was still there, but new images arose of slave auction signs and whites only, no colored allowed signs. Robin spoke of the unfulfilled promise of the declaration as she led the group through the dreadful review of black lynching, economic exclusion, school segregation, and the many other forms that Jim Crow took. After letting the group view a copy of the Green Book, these are one of these travel guides that black Americans use to navigate the Jim Crow South, she declared that our answer to the racism and segregation that we experienced was entrepreneurship. She then listed dozens of black inventions, walked the group through a room full of images of black businesses, banks, newspapers, and churches. This story, the story of a high ideal, often unrealized but still inspiring, and a struggle for independence and economic power, is the story of black liberation through the marketplace. And when my co-author Marcus Witcher and I put this book concept together, we knew that classical liberals have much to offer the conversation around race in America. But uh, none of that had exactly been collected together into one place. And so that's what we wanted to do with this book. We wanted to bring classical liberal insights to bear uh, on America's racial history and, and, and its future as well. Uh, but, you know, we classical liberals have not always done such a great job ourselves of uh, explaining the um, contributions that classical liberal scholars have made in this area. We might say that classical liberalism captures America's dedication to four distinct institutions. Property rights, including the right to one's bodily integrity. Freedom of contract, equal protection of the law. And a cultural affirmation of trade and entrepreneurship. The great classical liberal F.A. Hayek famously critiqued the term social justice, 
And we do find his critique successful, but we know that people don't always use the term social justice in the way that Hayek assumed it meant, right? So he assumed that social justice meant the massive redistribution of wealth in order to create sort of perfectly equal material outcomes. I think the term has sort of spread and become fuzzy around the edges and, uh, and, and can often mean, it just in regular parlance to the Joe Schmo on the street, social justice might just mean speaking up for the voiceless, those who are particularly vulnerable to oppression. And so I, we want to be sensitive to that sort of cultural difference. In the book, we look at uh, uh, many examples of rights violations and failure to extend equal protection of the law uh, in the history of black America. Uh, for this talk, I'm just going to pick two examples. So the first one is uh, convict leasing, the convict leasing program. Are you all familiar with this from the late 19th century and early 20th century? No, a lot of people aren't. Okay, good. So I'm telling, I'm, you're learning something. I'm telling you something new. And I learned a lot about it in my research. But we see a very clear example of rights violations on almost every level in this system. Uh, what happened is that um, black men in the South were criminalized uh, for things that were invented, okay? Vagrancy laws, very vague, you know, you, if a white man came up to you and asked for uh, proof of employment and you couldn't prove it, then that, that would be a crime. Well, that's not a crime. It's not a crime just to be standing there without a job. But uh, it was turned into a crime. Um, carrying a gun, which, of course, all white people could do at the time, and was quite common, uh, was turned into a crime. Uh, you know, maybe even speaking to a white woman, okay? And so you could be arrested for almost anything. So it's important to keep into, it's never right to, um, you know, it's never right to mistreat even prisoners who are guilty of their crimes. But many of these people were not guilty of anything. So it's important to keep that in mind. And by many, I mean many, many, many of these people were not guilty of anything. Uh, as time went on, they... Um, began to lease out the convicts to work in uh, various areas, uh, sometimes farms, but oftentimes mines. And uh, there was this really terribly ironic twist to this whole story, a very tragically ironic twist, which is that um, since these men were not slaves, right? In other words, since they were not owned by anyone, there was even less of an incentive to care for their well-being than there would have been from someone who was even just treating them as, uh, as a, a capital investment. And so what happened is that um, the care was very poor, uh, very little exposure to the sun, very little food, uh, terrible living conditions, and plague would sweep through the camp of prisoners. Um, they, they died. I mean, the percentages were so high that uh, one... Uh, one defender uh, argued that if the state wanted to execute its citizens, it should really at least take them to court, right? Because the percentages of just sheer death from plague were so high in this program. This is all recorded in Douglas Blackman's Slavery by Another Name, the re-enslavement of black Americans from the Civil War to World War II. So some of these lasted a very, very long time. Hundreds of thousands of black men were caught up into the system, a few white people as well, but, but the vast majority were black men. Um, there were also kind of kangaroo trials associated with this 
practice, uh, very quick, you know, done in a few minutes with some local judge. Uh, and here's the real trick to how they did it. You, you had a representative uh, to defend you who would then uh, charge you for their services. And so now, not only were you going to prison for whatever false charge you were being charged with, but you were also in debt. You were immediately in debt. And so then you had to work off the debt, right? And so you were able to put people into prison for totally trivial things for a year, and then they would accrue more debt, and so they were in for more years and so forth. Uh, many of the records are terrible. There's not even a charge listed. Uh, sometimes children as young as seven are recorded as being in these camps. Uh, truly a, a very clear human rights violation. So what do we see there? We see the violation of, obviously, the right to, to one's bodily integrity, the right to freedom of movement, being accused of false crimes. And, and more to the point, perhaps, the, the failure in the equal protection of the rule of law, which is such an important uh, pillar of classical liberal thought. The second example we could take a look at is, uh, and, and we do lots of examples in the book, okay, we kind of do a, a little survey of all of uh, African-American history, but I wanted to pick one that was a little older and one that was a little newer. Let's take a look at urban renewal and the interstate highway system. Uh, the, the federal government subsidized all white suburbs uh, and created or excluded black and mixed neighborhoods from these subsidies. And this was intended to relieve the density of the cities and create idyllic all-American neighborhoods. In 1949, Congress passed the American Housing Act, which provided for even more federal housing administration, mortgage insurance funding, more public housing, and slum clearance. So, so the famous redlining, which I'm sure you've heard of, uh, redlining is becoming uh, more well-known, and there's the famous book, The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, which is uh, excellent. Uh, you really see the Federal Housing Administration's plans here launching in the 20s. So this is just sort of ratcheting up in the 40s, uh, where, you know, let's not forget that uh, eugenics was very, very popular, particularly among progressives at the turn of the century. And the idea, it was a kind of social engineering concept that um, Black and white people and other people needed to live separately. That's how they would live peacefully. That would, that would be the peaceful way for things to move forward. So the social engineers thought they really understood how things should go, and they made sure that they went that way. And so we see the history of redlining. Um, the, uh, the concept of slum clearance is referred to as urban redevelopment and later urban renewal although black Americans referred to it as Negro removal. Planners deemed unattractive apartment buildings and ramshackle houses filled with minorities slums, while many were in fact vital cultural and economic centers for poor but upwardly mobile working class people. James Baldwin told this story in, 19, in a 1963 interview. Here's James Baldwin. A boy last week, he was 16 in San Francisco, told me on television, thank God we got him to talk, maybe somebody else ought to listen. He said, I got no country, I've got no flag. Man, he's only 16 years old. And I couldn't say you do. I don't have any evidence to prove that he does. They were tearing down his house because San Francisco is engaging as all most Northern cities now are engaged in something called urban renewal, which means moving the Negroes out. It means Negro removal. That is what it means. And the federal government is 
an accomplice to this fact. Now this, we're talking about human beings. There's not such a thing as a monolithic wall or, you know, some abstraction called a Negro problem. These are Negro boys and girls who are at 16 and 17, don't believe the country means anything that it says, and don't feel they have any place here. On the basis of the performance of the entire country. No, am I exaggerating? End quote. By 1956, Eisenhower signed the Federal Highway Act into law. Prior to LBJ's Great Society Project, this act accounted for the greatest non-war expenditure of federal funds in American history thus far. Since 90% of the uh, funds for the highway system came from the federal government, it was then open season for city planners to route the highway in order to complete their social engineering goal of vanilla suburbs. Now, whites could communicate to work in the city uh, sorry, commute to work in the city from their spacious suburban homes, and even more slums could be cleared to make room for the highway itself. This time, though, planners wouldn't be bothered with the legal responsibility to relocate the dispossessed, a responsibility that had often been conveniently ignored in urban renewal programs anyway. Moreover, planners entrenched the segregation between white and black or out west Latino neighborhoods by running the highways in such a way as to permanently divide the communities. And we're dealing with this in every major American city to this very day. In The Folklore of the Freeway by Eric Avila, Avila tracks the highway's march through several major cities. In Nashville, I-40 actually veers off its path to bisect the black part of town. In Minneapolis-St. Paul, a hot spot of black culture at the time, planners rejected the northern route that would have taken the highway near an industrial part of town and instead elected for the central route. The route wiped out the historic Black Rondo neighborhood in spite of popular protests and even internal dispute over the question of why white and black neighborhoods were being destroyed when there was a perfectly serviceable alternative that could avoid that effect. Today, there's even a Rondo Days Festival that celebrates the old neighborhood every year. On the festival page, the mission reads, Rondo Avenue, Inc. is dedicated to preserving, conserving, and accurately interpreting the contribution of the African-American community of Rondo to the city of St. Paul. This community was destroyed by the construction of Interstate I-94 in the 1960s. Overtown in Miami was destroyed by I-95 in spite of the fact that it was home to a healthy mix of low and middle class uh, black and Afro-Caribbean families, as well as a thriving nightlife scene and a wide variety of well-functioning neighborhood institutions. Overtown is now a wasteland. It's people displaced to the second ghetto in outlying areas of Miami. Who can know what culture, what networks, what meaningful so social associations were lost? Who can measure the differences in outcomes for these displaced families and their children? Would the shops, the churches, the schools, the charities be simply or easily reconstituted elsewhere? Of course not. The worst part of the Overtown story is that a perfectly good road could have been built elsewhere, preserving this thriving black neighborhood and retaining the economic benefits. But a group of downtown business owners and politicians pushed for the plan that was finally adopted. And while we could discuss uh, Robert Moses here, I'm sure you've heard, maybe you've heard that name, uh, the famous New York uh, planner, with his evisceration of the old ethnic neighborhoods of Brooklyn, we won't. That's because Italians, Poles, Germans, Jews, and Irish could move out to the suburbs. Uh, there were some restrictive covenants targeting Jews, uh, I, I should mention. But black Americans decidedly could not. They did not have that alternative. If anecdotal cases seem unconvincing, 
A libertarian scholar at the time compiled mountains of data on urban renewal for dissertation that turned into a book. In 1964, economist Martin Anderson, who later served as uh, as one of President Ronald Reagan's closest economics advisors, released a, a book called The Federal Bulldozer. The Boston College Law Review harshly criticized the book at the time uh, for various reasons, but actually agreed with its conclusions. <laughs> the, the reviewer agreed uh, with the most relevant conclusions. In fact, one of his criticisms of, of Anderson is that he didn't apply all the same critiques of urban renewal to the highway program. So, uh, you know, he's saying, really, this is consistent uh, across both programs. Um, I won't go into all the details there, but plenty of data to support um, the way that what I just described is really true in, in most American cities. So these are just two examples of the many we discussed in the book of clear cases of rights violations in the history of uh, black oppression in America and so we're not just talking about sort of personal uh, racial animosity, right? We're talking about de jure uh, exclusion of black Americans that uh, I think conservatives, libertarians, classical liberals can speak very graciously and intelligently about from their own sets of principles, right? Their, their dedication to the principles of private property, of, of self-ownership, of freedom of contract, uh, and of... Uh, a, openness to, to entrepreneurship and business, that people should be free to pursue those opportunities. Uh, but we wouldn't have a very convincing case to make if classical liberals never uh, did much to defend black Americans. And I think the stereotype is that they didn't do much. But I actually think that's false. Um, and so we dug into the history a little bit and uh, there's a couple things worth mentioning. I mean, certainly the fact that Adam Smith and many of the other economists of his day were overt abolitionists. In The Wealth of Nations, um, Smith gives a powerful condemnation of slavery. I went to Scotland uh, on my honeymoon about four years ago, and we saw his grave. And on his grave is engraved the words, the property which every man has in his own labor, as it is the original foundation of all other property, so it is the most sacred and inviolable. And Smith spent much time arguing both morally and economically against the institution of slavery. And it turns out that free market thinkers of the mid-19th century were actually fiercely anti-slavery, including William Lloyd Garrison, Henry Ward Beecher, Joshua Levitt, and Ralph Waldo Emerson. So we often learn that these people were anti-slavery, but we're not taught that they were major free marketeers. Listen to something that... Um, that uh, William Lloyd Garrison said in The Liberator. He says he calls himself a radical free trader and he desires the abolition of all custom houses as now constituted throughout the world, which would be your tariff collectors, right? It's a pretty extreme position. Uh, they're all followers of a guy named Richard Cobden, who's a kind of apostle of free trade. And for many of them, this was a Christian commitment to nonviolence. And so as Christians, they were both against the violence and coercion involved in slavery and against the violence and coercion involved in things like the Corn Laws, right? And other sorts of uh, ways that the state gets in the way of, of voluntary exchange. Classical liberal economist John Stuart Mill 
was so famous for his anti-slavery and anti-racist views, as a matter of fact, that Thomas Carlyle nicknamed economics the dismal science for that reason. So if you know any economists, you might think it's called the dismal science because economists do regressions, right, and just look at a bunch of numbers. Uh, but no, that's not actually how it got that name. It got that name because Mill was insisting that all human beings are basically the same. Uh, and that that's how economics should treat human beings. They're, they've got similar kinds of incentives. They, they're going to be motivated in similar sorts of ways. And that was actually very well known at the time. People could even recognize references to that dismal science comment in, in cartoons. Uh, so even just the regular public knew that that's what that term meant at the time. Of course, Frederick Douglass, loud and proud classical liberal, fully aware of the philosophical alternatives. The anti-slavery movement was uh, a mixture of people. There were free traders, there were socialists, there were anarchists. He was very familiar, but he chose classical liberalism. Uh, you know, there's the famous passage in his autobiography where he's so deeply impressed by the experience of making a contract for his own labor, being paid, and then having to give nine-tenths of what he made to his master. And it was like something clicked for him at that moment. And he thought, oh, no, there's such a dignity in being able to contract myself out, right, for labor. And it, there's such an indignity in having the fruits of my labor stolen from me. In his famous speech, What to a Slave is the Fourth of July, Douglas asked the crowd if they would have him argue that man is entitled to liberty, that he is the rightful owner of his own body. There is not a man beneath the canopy of heaven that does not know that slavery is wrong for him. Douglas argued explicitly against his socialist friends that property is a natural right and that the main problem with unionism is that it assumes that workers and owners are playing a zero-sum game when they're actually in a mutually beneficial relationship. So with regard to property, he said, quote, so far from being a sin to accumulate property, it is the plain duty of every man to lay up something for the future. And as to the mentality of unions in his day, he said, and this is kind of a funny quote, their idea that every piece of bread goes into the mouth of one man is so much bread taken out of the mouth of another was not villainy, but rather merely honest stupidity because they were treating it as a zero-sum game. Finally, Douglass's push for black land grants and universal education for, for black Americans was framed not in the language of general welfare, but in the language of straightforward restitution for theft of labor and other crimes against formerly enslaved people. Give the Negro fair play, Douglas declared in 1893, and let him alone. But that was just the issue. The Southern black codes would not give the black people fair play limiting gun rights, voting rights, and economic rights based on color. And in case you're concerned, I, I cover the northern black codes too, okay? So it's, it's all across the country, not just in the south. But Douglas uh, uh, says, finally, in his old age, he says, the trouble never was in the Constitution, but in the administration of the Constitution. Okay, so I don't want to go into too much detail, but I do want to make you aware of a couple more people in this history. Oswald Garrison Villard uh, was a co-founder of the NAACP, along with Moorfield Story. Both of these men were serious classical liberals. Villard sort of softened his position later in life, but Story never did. And they absolutely um, 
they absolutely worked on the project of the NAACP from a classical liberal perspective. They were going to work through the legal institutions in order to show that these uh, laws were a violate were rights violations of Black Americans. Uh, and so there's various quotes from them, sort of with their classical liberal bona fides. Another really interesting one is Rose Wilder Lane. So if you've heard, yeah, I mean, obviously you know Laura Ingalls Wilder. Uh, this is her daughter. Uh, who, who actually became a communist, but then went to, the, went to Russia and changed her mind. Uh, <laughs> she's considered one of the mothers of libertarianism. She worked for the Pittsburgh Courier, which was the biggest black newspaper in the country. And she spent her time in that newspaper making libertarian arguments for black liberation. And actually, this is funny. She got fired for two hotly worded uh, op-ed on zoning, which is ironic because, of course, zoning is one of the major ways in which uh, black people are excluded. That sort of nimbyism, not in my backyard. Um, so, so you see, and, and I could mention many more. Uh, Zora Neale Hurston is another really interesting one. Anti-New Deal, very individualist. Uh, Zora Neale Hurston is the, well, she was an anthropologist, but she was also the author of the novel Their Eyes Were Watching God which is an excellent novel I highly recommend. And Zora Neale Hurston really paid for it. Langston Hughes and others, other communist members of the Harlem Renaissance you know, kind of blackballed her. And she ended up dying in obscurity in spite of the fact that she was really a genius. And only recently has her, her interviews with the final, the last slave that had come across on, like, you know, that, that had actually come across on a boat and could remember Africa. She um, interviewed him. There's a long, and that's called Barracoon, or Barracoon, however you say that. Uh, that just came out two years ago or something, uh, was published. And that's because she was a good anthropologist as well, as a novelist. Uh, T.R.M. Howard, uh, who David Beto, uh, the, the libertarian scholar, has written a book about. You know, many of these people played huge roles in the civil rights movement because the movement, including the NAACP, but other elements of the civil rights movement, needed to be funded. And T.R.M. Howard was an incredibly successful entrepreneur. He built hospitals, black hospitals, all over the country. And you could say the same about people like Madam C.J. Walker and John Johnson. There is no NAACP and there is no civil rights movement without these just towering figures of black entrepreneurship. And they turned right around and used that money for that purpose um, pretty consistently. Now, as the civil rights movement uh, was sort of wrapping up, you, you, the, the legal part of it, you'd get this split in the black community. So you have sort of Martin Luther King Jr., uh, and others putting emphasis on the next steps really being government economic programs. And then people like Malcolm X saying, uh, no, it's really about, uh, it's really about self-help in the black community uh, building its, its business capital. And, uh, and I mention that because as we turn to looking for solutions, uh, we discuss five in the book. And we really do try to emphasize economic freedom, economic empowerment, um, and other freedoms that feed into that. But before you can get into solutions, you do have to acknowledge the pain of our history. And there's a wonderful way to do that. It's called transitional justice. And so if you've heard Acton Institute fellow Anthony Bradley talk about this, you can read his article on transitional justice uh, online. 
the part that I'm really honing in on here, transitional justice is used in international uh, situations all the time when there's serious humanitarian violations, um, really honing in on the idea of institutional memory and the point of, uh, you know, really recording the experiences of people like, you know, living Jim Crow survivors, you know, many of whom are our neighbors and friends, um, and honoring their experience. Um, is, I, the, the comparison maybe is inappropriate, but the comparison I often use in my mind is being a part of a dysfunctional family. You know, you can heal those things, but you don't just get to move on without talking about it, right? I mean, so I think there's a, I think there's a, a legitimate uh, role there, and I think that uh, conservatives and libertarians can actually contribute well to that conversation because transitional justice focuses on very precise things. So it's hyper-local, it's your town, right? What happened here? And it focuses on specific stories uh, as opposed to sort of nebulous ideas of oppression, right? And so you really, I think that's the, the way to heal it is to deal with the specific cases. Economic freedom, I, I like, uh, I know that MLK ended up being a, uh, uh, a little more progressive economically, but he did have a great quote on economic freedom. It's, Some people say, burn, baby, burn, but I say, build, baby, build, and learn, baby, learn, so you can earn, baby, earn. It's <laughs> a great line. Um, in this section, we appeal quite a bit to a book by Michael Tanner, The Inclusive Economy, How to Bring Wealth to America's Poor. And there are so many areas of economic unfreedom that, are easy for middle-income people to deal with, you know, like jumping through a lot of bureaucratic hoops, but make it impossible for lower-income people to break into the market. And so part of what we can do to speak up for the voiceless is to deal with some of those. My good friend Shamed Dogan in Missouri fought for 10 years to allow African hair braiders to not have to go to cosmetology school. <laughs> took him a long time to beat the salon lobby, okay, but he did it, right? Because everybody is uh, crony, <laughs> and so they're all trying to find ways to block their competitors. And who's going to really suffer from that? Well, startups, right? People who are trying to break in. And so we have to be very, very sensitive to those sorts of things, to the nimbyism in our lives, the not in my backyard kind of attitude we can have with our zoning laws. Um, those are the sorts of things that, that are going to make a difference. And so we discuss that in our section on economic freedom. We move on to discuss educational freedom. It's uh, an interesting thing to consider that the fact that we organize our public education based on school districts which are geographic, means that we are perpetuating the injustice of redlining and slum clearance because black people in major cities were ghettoized by the federal government uh, to a great extent. And now they're not allowed to go to school outside of that neighborhood. So it only makes it worse, right? It's, it's uh, abuse upon abuse. And so freeing our young people from the constraints of the public school system is incredibly important. And so I would argue that, uh, you know, we should be open to all forms of school choice and thinking about which forms are the are best uh, and most effective, but that's where the conversation should be. And, you know, one of the themes of the book 
is just how tribal and polarized we've become in America. I think maybe you've noticed that over the last few years. Um, interestingly, economic, or sorry, educational freedom is a real tribe-busting topic. Uh, even though we associate school choice with the Republican Party and, and the teachers' unions with the Democratic Party, um, black and Latino voters who tend to be more Democratic will, will break away from the party on this issue. Uh, 60 and 70% in favor of some form of school choice. And I have personally no legislators who have really PO'd their party in Missouri by switching sides on this. And it's because they're just looking at the situation with their own eyes and they can't deny what's going on in their neighborhoods. Just last night, I was having dinner with uh, a Democratic uh, person who has run for office and held office who described a very successful charter school that he was a part of for several years that took, uh, you know, took their proficiency rates into the 95th percentile from a district where kids were practically illiterate. I mean, it was an absolute miracle, you know? And so you, people will bust out of their tribes for that one. And the other place where we're busting out of our tribes, tribes is criminal justice reform. So I highly recommend the book Prison Break by TELUS, T-E-L-E-S, who records how conservatives turned against mass incarceration. Actually has a lot to do with Chuck Colson and prison fellowship uh, and the way that, uh, you know, very traditional conservative Republicans were coming into contact with uh, people in the criminal justice system and noticing that this system could work a lot better. Uh, and they were paired with Pew Research um, data experts who showed just how much all of this is costing and just how high our incarceration rates are compared to our crime rates, generally speaking. We're in, a, we're in an odd moment right now with COVID, but generally speaking. And a lot of deep red states actually took action because, uh, you know, they sort of could appeal to them from both directions, right? Both budget and practicality. And, uh, and so it's actually places like Georgia and Texas and Oklahoma and Kansas have done some of the most um, aggressive criminal justice reform. Isn't that interesting? Uh, right? And so uh, that's another area where I think conservatives can um, bring an element of realism and of uh, an understanding of human nature and pursue reforms that make sense. So you can need reform, but you need to be realistic about your reform. And so that, that can be a really important contribution. And then let me just end by, by just mentioning neighborhood stabilization. I'm really the most passionate about neighborhood stabilization. I would refer you to uh, Toxic Charity by Bob Lupton, uh, When Helping Hurts by Brian Fickert, uh, to John Perkins's Christian Community Development Association, to the work of Robert Woodson uh, with gangs and in schools. Really, when you have seriously destabilized neighborhoods, and this is not the majority of black Americans, the majority of black Americans, 80% do not live below the poverty line, okay? They are, they are emerging from all of that. But when you are dealing with the consequences of some of these terrible policy decisions, and that is certain communities that have been completely destabilized, it's going to take hyper-local, long-term commitment, personal presence. That is the only possible solution. You're not going to have a kid pull themselves up by their bootstraps, and they're not going. It's not going to be solved through uh, push-button government programs either. It's got to be personal presence and community building uh, that's really motivated by love. 
And so uh, please do pursue looking at some of that neighborhood stabilization work. I'm on the board of Love the Lou, lovethelou.org, uh, in St. Louis, which is a great example of that kind of work. So I'll end there. Thank you. Okay, so we're opening for questions, right? Okay. <laughs> All right. So we actually have lots of time for questions, so ask me anything. There's plenty I didn't talk about from the book, so I can answer your questions on those. Okay, we got to make sure we're on for the online audience, right? Thank you again. Very informative. Uh, any relationship between the uh, transactional justice and the uh, Black Lives Matter movement today? Um... Transitional justice, I want to make sure they get that right. Um, it really, it doesn't come from that. So it's an international movement where you're dealing with uh, cases like, let's say, the Hutus and the Tutsis, right? So, so cases where you have real alienation because of major society-wide humanitarian problems. Uh, pursuing you know, every single person who committed a crime is not really an option, right, in many of those cases. And so it really has a much longer, older history. Um, it's more precise than social justice, which, you know, that, that term is hard to define. That's kind of my complaint, right? It's hard to define. But it, it, can, be, it, it can mean almost anything, where transitional justice is trying to focus on particular cases. Do we need to go back and retry? Uh, well, I'll give you some examples. I actually left these out just for time. But um, in the case of the Tulsa massacre, for instance, um, it was actually a Republican mayor, I think, that got it started. But they, they actually did like an archaeological dig, you know, to find out what really happened, how many people really died. Let's tell this story, right? Let's honor what occurred. And so it doesn't necessarily overlap with Black Lives Matter, but you know, would there be people in Black Lives Matter that would be willing to participate in that sort of project? Maybe. Um, I don't know. So I don't, I don't really think of the two as, as connected, I guess. I don't know if you want to do a follow-up, but yeah. It's, it's, it's something, it's kind of a tried and true, actually, approach internationally. And so the idea in Bradley's article is how can we apply this to our history because you know, I think there there is an element, and maybe we've swung the pendulum too far the other way, but there is an element of, you know, let's all just kind of not talk about it and move on that, that occurred for a long time. And now I think what we're getting is we're kind of in reaction mode. And so there's a group that wants to do nothing but talk about it. And there's another group that really doesn't like that group. And so they don't want to talk about it either. And I would, I would take a totally different tack, kind of a third way, right? And I'd say, no, let's talk about it, but let's be very specific, right? And so let's go to my town and look at what occurred and tell those stories, but also don't make it trauma porn. Tell the stories of the successes. Tell the TRM Howards and the Madam C.J. Walkers and the John Johnsons. Tell those stories too, right? And so, um, yeah, that's the kind of balance I would like to strike. Thank you very much for your presentation. <clears throat> I was just going to kind of follow up on that question in light of what you're doing with uh, Love the Lou and um, your local community. Have you been able to do anything like that in your local community where persons in the community can tell their story and maybe address some of that pain? Well, that's a great question. Um, so I... 
worked on a, the answer is sort of no, because I worked on a bigger project to work with HBCUs to do these sorts of um, projects in their towns. So I'm, I'm a good friend of uh, a scholar named Kathleen Amons, who's at Albany State in Georgia. And we actually worked up a whole proposal to be doing these sort of Jim Crow interviews because we felt that HBCU students uh, could really benefit from sitting down with an elder, right, and hearing some of these stories. And many of these elders, they don't have a hopeless account of their lives. They experienced difficult things and they experienced good things, and it's a mix. One of the things that we I didn't discuss, but I have a whole chapter on in the book, is the Black Church, which is a major source of hope and of community, uh, and really almost the womb, like the cultural womb of uh, Black America, that uh, it would probably benefit these young people a lot to have those conversations, but I did not receive the funding. I haven't given up. And so I may follow up on that project later, but that was that was my initial idea was to work with some of my network partners at HBCUs, starting there. Now at Love the Lou, I'm focusing more on the uh, the idea of sort of a block by block way of addressing you know that eight to ten years of commitment, um, bringing not sending people out of the neighborhood to be in a program but bringing resources into the neighborhood so that the vision of a different life becomes clear to the students. Now, Love the Lou has been there for 10 years in, on the Enright Boulevard, and they're about to start their second neighborhood, and that neighborhood is stabilized. Those kids are going to college, they're getting jobs, they're not joining gangs, they're not going to jail, they're not getting pregnant, okay? I mean, it works, it works, it's amazing. Do you have to be sensitive to um, you know, some of the bad experiences that those kids have had. Absolutely. You better be tuned into that. So, you know, you can't be politically tribal and do that kind of work. You know, it's funny in a way that my two, two, my two examples from the civil rights movement are John Perkins and Robert Woodson, both guys who were in the civil rights movement. John Perkins was like tortured by cops at one point when he was a teenager. Um, John Perkins would probably sound a little more left-leaning. So he, he would, he's used the term social justice since the 1970s, right? What does he say? Jesus and a job. You know, that's John Perkins. Um, wonderful guy. Robert Woodson sounds very conservative, right? Ownership. He's got these guys. He's got his neighborhood people buying their own Section 8 housing and becoming the landlords. I mean, it's pretty cool. And doing gang intervention. So these guys sound real different, but they do the same stuff, right? And we are so caught up in all of this buzzword reactionaryism that we are totally missing the boat, in my opinion. When you get down at the level of the street, I don't care what your political view is. You know, you're working with people. These are souls that you're working with. And I can't tell you what a joy it is to see the successes with the Love the Lou kids. It is awesome. Awesome. Curiosity. Uh, the Love the Lou uh, that you just addressed, are they going to um, charter schools or parochial schools, or are they going to the, shall we say, unfortunately, substandard uh, public schools that are so prevalent? <laughs> yeah, the public schools in their neighborhoods are not good. Um, I do know, I don't know the exact stats on that, but I do know that, for instance, one of the most successful kids in the program that is now now working for Love the Lou, right? He's, he's in his 20s now, and... and uh, starting to give back. I know that he did um, take advantage of one of these um, 
I can't remember the name of the ministries, but one of these ministries where you move into a house with a family and actually went to a county school. And he described to me, his name is Jamel. I don't think he'd mind me quoting him on this. He described to me the difference in the feeling, even just from being out of that failing district. So he was still in public school, but, but he was out of a failing district in a, in a decent district. And um, he said, when I was at my old school, you would be beat up and called a nerd just for carrying a backpack, right? He said, I couldn't even concentrate. I couldn't learn. I couldn't learn there, right? And to him, it was a great relief to be at this school, which is only five miles away, um, right? But it's a, a different kind of uh, milieu. And so, no, I, I don't know that they're all moving into charter schools necessarily uh, in that particular ministry, there, I think that the, the people in the ministry are trying to sort of meet people where they're at. But there are cases where the most gung-ho will find a way to go somewhere else. Um, that is happening. Now, in, in Missouri, uh, which is where I live, you can only have a charter school in a failing district. You're not allowed to. So only St. Louis City and Kansas City have any charter schools. You're not allowed to open charter schools outside of that. And so that's, that's very limiting um, in terms of the even the options. And charter schools also suffer from, frankly, still needing to, you know, needing to live up to too much regulation. I have a friend who I would, I think is probably pretty left-wing, who was involved in the charter school movement and ran a successful charter school, financially successful, absolutely, that was specifically focused on boys who had dropped out. And she was helping them get to graduation. But she had her own creative ways of doing that that you have to use when you're dealing with a difficult population. And she closed that charter school after a number of years because the regulations were so stringent, she couldn't really do the model that she needed to do, right? And so even there, you have struggles with really getting to where you need to be. It's absolutely by design. I've also, uh, there are also cases in St. Louis where charter schools, uh, the public school system will not sell their empty building to the charter school. They will not do it. They'll rather let it sit there and rot. Yeah. And so, yeah, so there's still a long way to go when it comes to educational freedom. Although, didn't COVID kind of break the education system? Has anybody else noticed this? There's something like 27 states have passed uh, school choice stuff, and you've got micro schools opening. And uh, anyway, so it'll be interesting to see how that goes over time. I would love to see something like Georgia's law. Uh, Georgia has a law that allows people to pay other people to homeschool their children, that is really wonderful for working poor parents. And so there are communities of black homeschoolers. And by the way, the population that has shot up the most in homeschooling is the black population in America uh, over COVID. Um, uh, people who are struggling economically can create co-ops that allow them to still go to work, right? Um, by actually being able to compensate uh, other parents for teaching. Uh, well, it's easy enough in the suburbs to have a homeschool co-op where nobody gets paid because it's illegal, right? Because you you may live in a two-income home or whatever it might be, right? Or you're just, you know, you're middle income. But for a low-income person, that's not possible. And so it shuts them out of the possibility of homeschooling. So I, I wish we could see the expansion of that Georgia law in other states as well. We have a question from the live stream audience. Okay. So what role does or could black liberation theology have in supporting a better future for the black marketplace? Not much. Um, 
I actually do have a little section in the book kind of saying, okay, sometimes the word liberation, it's, in a, it's a good word. I'm not going to let anybody else have it. It's a great word. But uh, people think of liberation theology. Let me be clear about something. Liberation theology, which started in Latin America, started in the 60s and 70s. That's where it comes from. The black American tradition has an anti-racist, liber true liberation theology that is 200 years old, and it comes from the book of Exodus, all right? And that's something very real in the black church tradition. As a matter of fact, uh, black, the black church tradition tends to be extremely tuned in to the Old Testament, to the story of the Exodus, and to the prophets, right, who deal with sort of the cry of the voiceless and the cry for justice. Um, frankly, much more than the white church. I mean, in terms of the focus on scripture, right? There's a lot of focus on that part of scripture. And so it, it bugs me, I've got to be honest, <laughs> um, to have people associate this long tradition of hope for liberation that came through uh, the black church and then say, you know, associate it with a liberation theology that was influenced by Marx and came about in the 60s and 70s. Um, black Americans are not socialist. I mean, like, obviously it's all statistical, right? We're just talking about, you know, probably, but, but if you look at, I mean, look at, look at the, look at the vote between, um, uh, Sanders and Biden in South Carolina. Once it got to the place where black people were making the decision, they did not vote for the socialist. <laughs> black people in America are entrepreneurial. They tend to be the most centrist Democratic voters because they're also very socially conservative, particularly on issues of things like gender and sexuality. Uh, they're not a good fit, quite frankly, in our white political categories, uh, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to write a tribe-busting book <laughs> about uh, black America, because they've never really fit. Uh, black Americans are 80 to 83% identify as Christians today. They're the most likely to believe in God, to pray, to read the Bible. They're the most likely group in America to do those things. Even the young people, even black millennials and Gen Z are far more likely than uh, their white compatriots to be have a spiritual life. Uh, you know, so there's a lot of things about black America that, uh, you know, kind of bust out of our, you know, boxes, right? But no, I, I think the main critique I would say with liberation theology is it's so tied up with the assumption that part of the oppressive system is the market economy, uh, right? And that's exactly what I'm arguing against. So in chapter two, I actually spend it, I, I do it by looking at Matthew Desmond's essay in the 1619 Project, which is particularly kind of making that claim and sort of taking that apart and saying, no, there's real oppression that occurs, but it's a departure from liberal values. And the um, solution is to return to truly applying the liberal values, not to abandoning the liberal values, which is more what you see in liberation theology. Uh, you talked about some historical issues with urban planning. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on uh, gentrification. Oh, what a great question. Um, I do have thoughts on it. Not, not totally worked out in my mind, but, you know, Bob Lupton's follow-up to um, Toxic Charity was a book called, get this, Charity Detox. <laughs> Smart. Um, <laughs> and he actually uses a phrase called gentrification with justice in that book because his argument is people actually do need to be networked with 
middle and upper income people because middle and upper income people have employment opportunities, right? And so one of the most frustrating things about being in a sort of ghettoized inner city neighborhood, once again, this is a minority of black Americans, right? I'm not talking about black American in general, but this sort of sticking point uh, group. One of the most frustrating things about being there is it's very isolating. And so what he did in Atlanta they called it a leptopia because they didn't believe he could do it, but he got the state to give him the Section 8 housing, and he created a mixed-income neighborhood. But before he did the, the changes, he had already—he'd been living in the neighborhood for 20 years, so he had already been working with his church as sort of the banker to be uh, getting the stable community members ownership of the place where they lived, Okay. And this is exactly what Love the Lou is doing as well. So if a church comes in and, and we have beautiful architecture in St. Louis that's crumbling in some place, some of it's beautiful, but some of it's crumbling. And these, these houses are just awesome. So a church comes in and fixes up the house and uh, they'll do kind of a rent to own situation. So if you have another, Lucas calls them persons of peace. These are people who are really trustworthy. They're on, they're in, living in the neighborhood. They're there at midnight when you need somebody to pray with you. You know, they're, they're just there, the personal presence. And uh, I mention uh, Tawana Lawson in my book. Tawana is one of these people. She's a person of peace. And so when Grace Church came in and they fixed up this house over the summer, uh, Tawana now rents to own that house. It's not forever. It's just, I don't remember the exact length, but she pays reliable rent for a certain number of years. And then the house is hers. Well, now she has an asset, right? And so what Love the Lou is trying to do, just as what Bob Lupton is trying to do, is not that no middle and upper income people should live there, right? But rather that stable members of the community, we should be supporting them in being able to stay. One of the things Lupton had to do is go to the Georgia legislature and get them to cap property taxes. Because of course, that's one of the issues. You can own property, but if the value goes up because of gentrification, you can be taxed out of your own property, right? And so I think there are ways to do this that are sensitive to both the need to have more of a, a mixed income neighborhood and also to keep the stable members there so that you're not just shoving, because what are you doing? I mean, you're just shoving the problem over to a, a new part of town, right? And that doesn't really solve anything. So I think that the neighborhood stabilization approach is the right one. You gotta get to the root, right? Get to the root of the issue. You've mentioned occupational licensing reform, educational reform, now you just referenced having a legislature cap taxes. These are all ways that we who are libertarians or classical liberals would like to restrain government from doing harm. What single thing, if we could restrain governments in any one way with these issues, what would give us the biggest bang for our buck? What would you recommend? Uh, zoning laws. I, I think I would probably say if I could restrict anything, and this is a really tough one because even, even the most libertarian among us might feel that local control is more appropriate, but it's often the nimbyism in our local communities that causes a lot of this. Um, I think one of the greatest sources of poverty in the United States today is the inability to build the housing that you need and for people to live near their jobs. Um, a really good example of this is California. 
where if you take cost of living into account, California is our most impoverished state and California's rich, right? So that's crazy. But it has the highest poverty rate when you take uh, cost of living into account because you cannot build anything there. You know, it's got to have solar panels and, it's, you know, it's got to have all this complicated stuff. It's never going to happen. It's not going to be high density. You're not going to be, so you've got people cramming in illegally into places just so that they can get to their jobs, right, in the nice neighborhoods. Um, I, I don't mean that I, I know exactly how to deal with that, but if I could just magically, magic beans, <laughs> I would get rid of restrictions on building. That's what I would do. That's what I would do. I think that would make a huge difference for people. I think we're out of time. No, Dylan has, do we have enough time for one more? One more, one more, Dan says. Uh, thank you so much for that talk. Uh, so I have a question. Um, one word that sometimes gets thrown around in these discussions is reparations. And yeah. it's kind of a popular image of that as basically the government just cutting checks uh, to the descendants of former slaves. Um, there may be some people who support exactly that, but from you know doing very little research in my own uh, very quickly encountered that there's about like a dozen different things that could potentially mean depending on who you're talking to. Yeah. Um, so could you parse some of that out? Like yeah. is anything of what you've been talking about reparations to someone, right? Um, is that a word that people should maybe be less reactive and tribal about? Yeah. Yeah. So I have a section at the end of the book. We, we have an epilogue called all the controversial stuff. <laughs> and, and so we have a short section on reparations there. First of all, I think you're right. I mean, you know, people like Robert Nozick talk about the legitimacy of reparations, Walter Block, <laughs> you know, the crazy anarcho-capitalist, um, right, because there is a justice issue, you know, oftentimes, and it's not 150 years old. It doesn't have to go all the way back to slavery. We can talk about Jim Crow, right, and being, being shut out of homes like this, like I was talking about with them in a domain and things like that. So um, on, just on principle, you can't just set it aside right? There's all these practical difficulties that people get into. In my libertarian fever dream, I would like to do what David Beto suggests, which is whatever we decide, whatever we decide we might want to do in terms of distribution, we should do it by selling federal lands. <laughs> the hey, they're the ones who did these terrible social engineering policies that were so hard on people. Right? And so there's a kind of responsibility there. And there's uh, something like $2 trillion in federal, the value of federal lands. And, and the truth is, is that while we talk about, it's common to talk about oppression benefiting, like there's a people who benefit from the oppression. And if maybe you want to talk about economic benefit on the part of the specific exploiters, you know, like plantation owners benefited, people don't benefit from oppression. The economy doesn't benefit from oppression. White people in general did not benefit from the oppression of blacks being economically excluded. They actually did worse, right? Of course they did worse because you excluded a whole group of people from full participation in the economy and from improving their human capital and things like that. So, you, so in terms of going and taxing people to do it, no. But selling federal lands, yes. Okay, then the question is, what do you do with it, right? And so I go back and forth between different ideas on that. Uh, one possibility would be just creating a, a capital opportunities, right? Uh, something like, you know, people with a little bit of established business um, acumen being able to access capital, because really that's, that's the major inequality that we've been left with that I think legitimately does arise from 
you know, from the historical circumstances. So I'm not saying that'll ever happen, but, but I want to add to your point one more thing, which is that no, reparations don't just have to mean government checks. Uh, is it reparations, in a way, when a white church and a black church partner up uh, so that uh, they can have a kind of reconciliation, you know, for all of the pain from, from history? Um, yeah, I think so. And quite frankly, that needs to happen because there were a lot of really egregious things. You know, it was the Cote Brilliant Presbyterian Church that funded Shelley V. Kramer to keep that black family out of the neighborhood just a few miles from my house, right? They funded that because they didn't want black people in their neighborhood. Okay, well, that's not very Christ-like, <laughs> okay? So yeah, I think there's a form of reparations that is cultural and not just um, governmental. And I think that um, I think that it is mostly in the church, actually. That would be a great place to do it. Uh, join me in thanking Dr. Ferguson for her lecture. Thanks, everybody. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of. If you're familiar with our past content or have attended an Acton event and would like to see it in a future episode, you can email us at producer at Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Gabriel Zsa. Zsa.